It's good to be with you this morning. As we get started, um, I want to say a thanks to John and Julie. John forgot Fishers of Men lyrics, but they covered for me on the bulletin. Uh, you had, had a beautiful bulletin cover. I believe you guys uh, were responsible for this, so thank you. You got it. That you got that there. So good job. Uh, got a great team of people who are assisting as we are going through this interim season. Um, again, if I've realized the other day, it's been a while since I let you know this, but uh, my name is Matthew, <laughs> and I'm here uh, with you through uh, the um, spring of next year as we journey through an interim season here at Brown's Chapel, and it's a joy to serve alongside many uh, wonderful men and women, uh, both on your board and on the leadership team that's been set up. We've been talking with you about how we're going to switch up what's going to be happening with our children's services. Uh, starting in September, our kids are going to be with us each Sunday morning up through this portion of the service where they will worship with us, pray with us, participate in receiving tithes and offerings, all those kinds of wonderful things. And then on the first and on the third Sundays of the month and the fifth Sundays of the month, uh, we will be sending our children to Children's Church. Uh, the other two Sundays, the second and the fourth Sunday of the month, they'll be with us here in the church service through all of what we'll be doing. Um, Benita has done a wonderful job uh, getting us ready for that. and She'll be leading our children when they're gone to Children's Church. And one of the things that she is going to be working hard on is scripture memorization. And she wants to invite us to come along on that journey with our children. So I want her to come and share a little bit about what she's planning and preparing as we head towards September. I appreciate uh, Benita's leadership in that, and I hope that you will uh, respond well to what she's asked you to do as we pray for one another, as we pray for our kids, and as we journey with them. Um, I will be committing some scripture to memory. <laughs> so we get, you guys, adults, we get a head start. This isn't until September, so you got this thing a couple weeks early, so get cracking at it, because uh, I would love to see our kids check us on that. That'll be good. Well, we're in our third week looking at different occasions throughout our Gospels that Jesus and water intersect. Kind of a fun summer series as we think about how much we like to be around water in the heat of the summer. Uh, one of my favorite experiences uh, was getting to go with a group of guys from Morganton, North Carolina, uh, to go fishing in a mountain creek, to go fly fishing. For three years, we lived in Morganton, North Carolina, and it kind of looked like, I think I got a picture of it, maybe, maybe not. There we go. It kind of looked like this up there. You have a mountain stream, and you get your rod, and you cast it out near the rocks and try to catch the little trout that live in the stream. And it was lots of fun. So we went out one day, and we're out there casting, and ah, we might have caught, between the four of us who were out there, one or two fish. And just nothing really interesting was happening. But all of a sudden, we heard a rumble off in the distance, and the guy said to me, come on, come on up here. There's a house nearby. Let's go sit on the porch up here. So we went up to the porch and sat down. I had no idea what was going on. But they heard this rumble coming along. And this big truck with this huge tank on the back of it came rumbling down the road. And it pulled up to a bridge near the creek. And they let this little spout come off the truck. And they started dumping out of the... <laughs> Out of the truck, they started dumping a bunch of trout that were raised on a farm into the water. Now, I didn't know that they were bringing me up here for this illegal purpose, but here they were, uh, you know, fish just flying in, hitting the mountain stream right off this bridge while we're sitting there uh, up on this porch pretending like we don't know what's going on. 
Later, the truck drives off into the distance to make its next stop, and they all grab their fishing rods and run down to the bridge. Now, the fish were warm in that truck, but the mountain stream was very cold. And so the shock of the warm water in the truck hitting the cold water of the stream caused the fish just to like seize up. They were really, really still. And you could take your fishing rod and just lean it over the bridge and dip it down in the water and snag a fish and pull it out. You could just pull one trout right after another. And so your catch limit was six trout. So I caught six within five minutes. And I had them all on a string, and I was done. And I, I didn't, I wasn't going to take them home and clean them. I'm not that big of a fisherman. But I had, there was this guy who came by, and he's like, can I have those? And I was like, sure. So I gave him mine. He fished for six more and just kept coming back for more and more and more as he went through there. Really interesting thing there. Jesus calls us, as uh, we sang in our opening song today, to be fishers of men. And that's this portion of scripture that we're going to look at today. If you have your Bibles with you, Mark chapter 1 is where we are in Scripture this morning. Mark chapter 1, beginning at verse 9. Mark is a super fast-paced gospel. Mark is believed to be the first gospel of the four that we have in our Scripture that was written. And he just powers through the story of Jesus as he uh, wrote it. He uses very intense language, like immediately Jesus did this and All of a sudden, Jesus did that, and bang, 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 it just happens all throughout there. So we're going to pick up in verse 9. You're going to hear a little bit about what we talked about last week as we get into Jesus calling his disciples. Mark chapter 1, beginning with verse 9, and we're going to read first through verse 15. Uh, This is New International Version, which is what's in your pews. If you've got the Bibles there that you want to look at to check the accuracy for me, page 707 in your red Bibles, page 990 in the blue Bibles. Uh, would you read it with me? Let's begin. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and the angels attended him. After John was put in prison, Jesus went to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. This is the portion I want us to focus on right here. John is the same John the baptizer that we learned about last week. And John was put in prison for what he was doing. He had too big a thing going on, and some of the people in leadership did not like that. So they threw him in prison, but Jesus carried on this message. And he would go throughout Galilee proclaiming, the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe the good news. This good news, as it's translated in the NIV, is the word gospel. It's the word gospel. Um, you heard the gospel story, it's language, it's kind of churchy word that we use a lot, the gospel message. It comes from a Greek word that's used in verses 14 and 15 called euangelion. Now, I am not a great Greek scholar. Uh, some of you may be. I just know enough to be dangerous. So I want to try to guide you through uh, this word really quick. Euangelion is the word for gospel, and it's a really a compound word 
made of a prefix and a word after it. Uh, it looks like this. It's you and angelos are the two words that come together, the prefix you and angelos to make the word gospel. And in its literal translation, if we could just like be super literal, what that means, angelos is word or message, and the prefix you, eu, is joyful. It is a joyful word or a joyful message. It's news that brings joy. And what I find interesting as we read our Bibles and try to understand context for what was going on for people is that when Jesus was going out through the countryside proclaiming the good news or proclaiming the gospel, the euangelion, he was giving them something that was familiar to their ears. The gospel, the euangelion, the good news, was not foreign to the people. When the word gospel was used, it meant that there was something history-making going on. For example, there's ancient Roman inscriptions that say the beginning of the gospel of Caesar Augustus. It's the story of the birth of a leader, and it was called the gospel of Caesar Augustus, the good news. The gospel would be proclaimed if there was a king, if, if your king had victory and ascended to the throne and brought freedom to the people. You're no longer slaves. You've been given a gospel, a good news. Um, you might be in captivity and another kingdom has come and captured the people that you are captive to. And all of a sudden you're out of that captivity and maybe the new captors want you to think that it's better. And so they would come and say, good news. I'm your king now. You might be in a town far off and know that there's war going on or that there's something happening and a messenger would arrive to give you the word that you had won the day that was delivered and called the gospel. The gospel. What I love about when we in the church say gospel is the difference between other religions and the Christian gospel. See, in other world views, what we are taught is that this is what you have to do in order to connect with God. You need to say this certain prayer using these certain words. You need to go through this certain motion to win God's favor. You have to be sure that all these things are lined up. But the gospel, the good news that Jesus was proclaiming, was to say, here's what has been done for you. This isn't something that you have to do. Here's something that's been done for you. Here's good news, something that's happened for you. And because of that, because it's already been accomplished, it's good news. How do you feel when you get advice on how to live? When somebody unsolicited brings you advice and says, here's what you ought to do. Sometimes you're like, telling me that. I don't need, I didn't ask for your advice. I didn't ask to be told what to do. Maybe sometimes you feel inspired by that. Maybe you're a little bit more gentle personality than I am. I don't particularly like somebody just coming out of the blue giving me that unsolicited. Maybe it burdens you and weighs you down. This is how you ought to live. But the gospel is different. The gospel connects you to what God has already done, not something that you have to do. Christ has done it for us. The kingdom of heaven is near, Jesus said. The gospel is here. This is good 
news. I'm speaking to call and, and bring you into an awareness that I love you and I'm going to accomplish it for you. So that none of us can boast. Remember, there's nothing that we can do to earn a right placing with God the Father. There is nothing that you and I could ever accomplish that will get us into that right standing. Jesus Christ did it for us. That's the good news. He had no way, and he made a way. That's the good news. And so he's preaching the gospel, he's speaking publicly, and as he's traveling through the countryside, he begins to call on disciples. So let's pick up in verse 16 of Mark chapter 1 and read some more. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. We'll stop right here again. Jesus calls his disciples, say, come, follow me, be fishers of men. This is kind of unique in Hebrew history. See, Jesus is a teacher or a rabbi, and traditionally the teachers or the rabbis didn't choose pupils or students to come follow them. Traditionally, the rabbi would just have people show up, and here's how it would normally go. When you were born into a Hebrew family, you would go to school, and you would be expected to memorize the Torah. That is the first five books of the Bible. Now, if you think that our four verses that we have been asked to memorize is exhaustive and you say, I can't do that, just imagine being born into a family where you were expected to learn Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. I mean, do we even know what's in Numbers and Deuteronomy? Has anybody ever even heard of that before? How in the world are we expected to memorize those things? And so you'd go to school to do that, and if you couldn't, you were told, go home and learn your father's trade. Go be whatever your family is. You're not good enough to continue on. You're not good enough to continue on. And so if your dad was a fisherman, you'd go home and you'd learn to be a fisherman. If your dad was a carpenter, you'd go home and learn to be a carpenter. If you built houses, you'd go home and you'd learn to do that according to your family's tradition. But the select few who memorized the Torah, who had it down, they would now be asked to go on to other books of Scripture. Memorize those. Oh, if you can't do that, you're not good enough, go home and learn your family's trade. And only the best of the best, the smartest and most learned guys, they would rise to the top, make their way all through all this memorization, and then they would pick a rabbi, a teacher, and follow that teacher around everywhere he went. There was a phrase that was used in Hebrew culture that was speaking of a blessing of following a rabbi. The phrase is this. It is a blessing to be covered in the dust of your rabbi's feet. You were expected to follow the rabbi so closely that as the rabbi walked along the path and kicked up dust, that that dust would land on you. You were that close following him wherever he went. 
you would stand outside the door of the outhouse while your rabbi did whatever happens in there. You would get as close as you could to this person. Sleeping arrangements, you're right next to a next meal. This serious business. This was called discipleship. This was called being a disciple of a rabbi. And all the other guys who had learned their family trades, they weren't good enough. They weren't good enough to be expected to be the kind of people who could be the disciples of the best teacher. You're not good enough. Go home and learn what your family is up to because you can't be a disciple. Now here comes Jesus to some young men who are working with their father on a boat. What does this tell you about these young men? What have they been told at some point in their past? You're not good enough. They've been told, you're not good enough. Go home and learn to be a fisherman. You can't cut it. Go home and be a fisherman. You could never learn what God wants you to know, how God wants you to be wise, what he wants to teach you. You couldn't ever get it. Go home. But Jesus is going to these men and saying, Come, follow me. Come walk in the dust. Come learn what I have to teach. Come be edified by the Spirit of God, the kingdom of heaven, here with you. This is a beautiful thing for me. Because I don't know, I don't feel like, in fact, I'm quite positive that I would not have made it through Hebrew schooling. I wouldn't have. I'd have to go home and take up the trade of my father. Now, my father was a pastor, so that's a little weird. That doesn't wouldn't count. Uh, <laughs> but go home and take up that trade. I would have had to have done that. I don't think I, I could have been that. But God still calls you and I to be disciples. And you might feel like you failed at some point. You might feel like you're not the smartest, the most learned, or have the most scripture memorized. You might just say, I'm a regular Jack or Jill. How could God ever call on me? And yet that's what Jesus does. Come, follow me. And he chooses you. Again, just get the imagery here for just a minute. The rabbi didn't traditionally choose the students. The students chose the rabbi. But God of the universe is choosing you to come follow him. He's giving you the invitation to say, come and follow me. It's a complete reversal of the way things were normally done. But what a beautiful thing it is and an instructive thing it is for us in our mind. Now look at James and John. James and John leave their father, leave their friends, leave their livelihood, give up their identity and their work. Jesus says to them, I want priority over your career and over your family. I must become the supreme passion of your life. And these guys just drop everything that they're doing and leave the boat and go and follow Jesus. I can't imagine how inspirational or what that must have been like for Jesus to be able to just walk by guys who are on a boat doing their job and say, hey, come follow me. I mean, if somebody did that, if you were at work tomorrow and somebody said, drop everything that you're doing, leave your family, uh, come with me, I will, you know, just somebody. Would you do it? You'd say, stranger danger, stranger danger. I can't go with you. <laughs> I can't go with you. You might be out to get me. But Jesus must have had something about him. So, I mean, wouldn't you love, don't you long for that day when you're going to get to see Jesus face to face? I can't even begin to imagine 
what that must be like to be in the presence of Christ. But he calls the disciples, come and follow me. And fanatically, they leave and follow him. Some of you might feel that way. You might say, well, that's a little extreme. Jesus, you just called these guys. I mean, what about poor Zebedee? He was getting ready to go fishing, and now his sons are gone. The people who helped him, they're gone. That's kind of extreme. Why would you ask them to come drop everything immediately and come follow you? You're asking a lot. But Jesus goes around throughout all of your scripture asking some pretty big stuff of people. There's times when he says to people, leave your family, leave your job, leave your possessions, come follow me. If anyone comes to me, Jesus says at one point in Scripture, and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life. That's pretty fanatic, isn't it? What is Jesus saying there when he's asking us to come be his disciples? I have to hate my wife? Is that why she just left just a minute ago? (laughs) Did she know this was coming? I have to hate Deborah, the little girl with the curly blonde hair that how could you ever hate something so sweet what is jesus saying there he is not calling us to actively hate he's speaking comparatively for us he's speaking comparatively what he's saying is i want you to be so sold out to me in your following of me, in your being a disciple, I want you to be so intensely following me that when people look at that, that they would say the intensity by which you love Jesus is so extreme, everything else pales in comparison. Does that mean actively hate your wife, actively hate your husband, actively hate your children or your mother or father? No, Jesus also says to care for our father and mother, to respect and honor our father and mother. Jesus is saying, though, I want it to, I want you to be so sold out to me that in comparison, everything else fades away. So what do we say? Oftentimes, we say things like, well, Christ, I'll follow you if my career goes well, if my health just gets a little bit better, if you could just do this thing for me, then I'll come follow you. But here's the truth. Jesus is not a means to an end. Jesus is not a means to an end. The end is not a better career or better health or a restored relationship or whatever. That is not the end. And Jesus is not the means by which we get to it. Jesus calls you to be a true disciple, someone who truly follows him, and Jesus is the end. Jesus is the goal. Jesus is never a means to an end. Jesus is the destination. He is the end. And that is being a disciple. Following Jesus with Jesus being the goal. That's the gospel. Following Jesus with Jesus being the goal. The gospel is not advice. It's the good news that you don't need to earn your way to God, that Jesus has done it for you, and that it is a gift that you receive by sheer grace alone. And through God's unmerited favor, you seize that gift and you keep it and you hold on to it. And then Jesus' call won't draw you into fanaticism or moderation. You'll be passionate to make Jesus your absolute goal and priority to orbit all of your life around him being the center. 
Christ be the center. So how do you know if you're a disciple? So you might say, okay, you know, I believe in Jesus. I believe in, in what he's about and what he does. Pastor Matthew, I totally get that. And I'm a disciple. Do you know the mark of a disciple? Do you know what is the definitive thing that says, this is how you know that you are a disciple? The mark of a disciple is a disciple makes disciples. If you're wondering whether or not you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, you have to ask yourself the question, am I making disciples? Are people, by being around me, coming to know Jesus and following Him? Are people, through the relationships and through crossing paths with me and through the time that I spend with my family and coworkers and friends and whatever else, are people knowing Jesus because of me? If they are, you, my friend, are a disciple. If they don't know, you, my friend, are not a disciple. Because the mark of a disciple is a disciple makes disciples. Paul, after he's converted on the road to Damascus, Paul writes at some point, he says, come follow me as I follow that should be the statement of our lives. Come follow me as I follow Christ. Let's take this journey together. Let's make Christ the end goal. Let's go along in this and be disciples of the great rabbi Jesus. It's the mission. It's the great commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of every nation. Why did Jesus do all of this? I mean... If we looked at all of it, can we? I mean, Jesus didn't finish up his time here on earth before he ascended into heaven and say, Well, that was fun. See you guys. That wasn't the goal. The goal for Christ was that the disciples would make disciples and that the church would be the bride of Christ. And these disciples that Jesus called, these guys who started out on a boat, these guys followed Christ to the bitter end. One of the things, I've told you before, there's like things that I believe like point to Jesus being who he said he was. I think that the way our Gospels were written, where it was the women who found Jesus, the resurrected Jesus first, again in the time, never. if you were making up a story, you never have said that. Here's another thing that I think is true evidence of that. With all but just minor exceptions, Every one of those disciples who followed Jesus, every one of those 12 who were the closest to him, followed him unto death. Peter, we don't have, like, I can't point you to a history book, but traditionally, as we look back on history, what we believe for him, Peter is called the rock. He's like the innermost circle of Jesus' disciples. He follows Christ so much that when he is put to death, for the name of Christ, for teaching about Jesus, that Romans want to crucify him, just like Jesus. And he says, I'm not worthy to be crucified in such a way. If I'm to hang on a cross, hang me upside down. And he was crucified upside down on a cross. Unto death. These guys thought, if it was a lie, would people have sold out their entire lives, their careers, their families to follow a lie 
I don't believe so. I don't think they'd step off the boat at the drop of a hat and follow Jesus for a lie. I believe that Jesus is who he said he was and that Jesus came to give us new life, a free gift to proclaim good news. And I believe that because of that, we follow him and we get covered in the dust of Jesus' feet and we go through that. We have to carry on this tradition. If we are not disciples making disciples, what happens to the church? What happens to the church? It's our mandate to make disciples. We have to carry it on. I always get very confused when I hear like the cult groups who are like, eh, you know, we don't have kids. We're a cult group. You know, we do our thing, but children are not a are not a thing. Well, how do you expect your group to last long if you're not <laughs> you never have any kids? What are you expecting here? It doesn't seem like it'd go very far. Well, spiritually, it's the same thing. Re- realistically, it's the same thing. If the church doesn't have kids, both literally and discipleship, figuratively speaking here, if we are not making other disciples and bringing them along, what happens to us? What happens to this place? It's not around for long, is it? It's not. Are you a follower of Jesus? Are you his disciple? The answer to that question is, who Who are you, disciple? Bow your heads, close your eyes, take a moment, just, uh, just a minute with me here as we reflect on that. I don't know who it is. If there's somebody in your workplace, we have students here who are with us today. There may be some who it's in their school, a fellow student, maybe even a teacher in the school. But as you reflect and you think for just a moment, who are the people who know Jesus because of me? I hope that there is somebody jumping to the forefront of your mind. I hope that if you're a parent, your kids are right there. That you're modeling and living this life of being a disciple out for your children to see. I hope that they know it. I hope that if it is in the workplace that there's a coworker who knows you or knows Christ because they know you. And if there's not, if there's not a person or persons who are immediately at the forefront of your mind, we need to begin to pray that God will give us a fresh boldness to be unashamed of the gospel, of the good news. It's joyful news. It's something to proclaim that He came and did this thing for us so that we could have life. God, in this moment, would you place in the mind's eye of everybody in this room the person or persons that they are to be leading along in a discipleship relationship. And God, if there is not that person or persons who comes to mind, Begin to move on our hearts. Give us a fresh boldness. Let us follow you all the way. God, thank you that when you call us, we don't have to be the top echelon, the best of the best. You call regular Joes, you call regular Jills into coming and serving you. 
God, I pray that people would know us in that way. We may just be common people, but we sure love Jesus. And we want others to know him too. And it's in Christ's name that